Hello and welcome to the Rehumanized podcast. This is Herb Garrity. And this is Emiliano Vera. Oh my gosh, you guys should see every single time I try to do an intro, I'm like, this is Herb. And then I give Emiliano the dirtiest look until Emiliano says their freaking name and it drives me crazy. Oh, I shouldn't, should I, uh, is the is the frick word too bad for the podcast? Uh, Maria, use your judgment on whether or not you want to bleep me Is that going to get that. us, no. is that going to get us like uh, the the big red E? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if any any of our donors are going to be like, "You said frick, you're out. I'm done. You're you're we're done with you." Um, but anyway, so welcome to the Rehumanized Podcast. Uh, this is our September 2021 uh, episode, and so that means that this uh, this month marks the 20 year anniversary of two major events, um, and that obviously, uh, or maybe not obviously is the attacks on the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, um, as well as the secondary event of the start of the War on Terror. And so this is going to be a war and militarism-themed episode, so sorry in advance if you don't want to hear about it, but that's that's what we're doing today. So welcome to the Rehumanized podcast. We have David Swanson on as a guest, uh, as, as just a guest, a podcast guest. Um, and we're going to be talking about 9-11, its impact, the war on terror, its impact, um, and where we are now and where we are moving forward for the next 20 years. Welcome on, David. We've got with us today uh, David Swanson from World Beyond War. So can you introduce yourself a little bit and what projects you've been working on? Well, I am a co-founder and executive director of World Beyond War, which you mentioned. It's at worldbeyondwar.org. We're doing all kinds of educational and activist work uh, toward reducing and eliminating militarism, which we can talk about. I also work for rootsaction.org on all kinds of issues. Uh, I've got a website at davidswanson.org, a radio show at uh, talkworldradio.org, etc. Awesome. You've also published several books, right? Plug those too. I have published several books. I cannot necessarily recall the names of all of them off the top of my head, but I can certainly try. Um, One recent one was called Leaving World War II Behind uh, because World War II mythology is such a powerful force for uh, supporting the sort of militarism that the U.S. culture and in particular the U.S. government engage in. uh, a, a while back, I wrote, wrote one called War is a Lie, aimed at getting people to spot the, the fraud in the sales pitches for wars more quickly. We have all these wars like Iraq and Afghanistan, where you've sometimes got polls even with a majority supporting at the time that it's launched. But always within a year and a half, two years, you've got a majority from there to eternity as the thing goes on for decades saying, no, never should have started that. You know, and there, and there wasn't any information missing. There was just an inability to spot the problem with the with the case for the war uh, as it was originally marketed, um, and and many others about his uh, many of them about history of of war and peace and activism, uh, etc. Well. We wanted to have you on because uh, there's been a lot of discussion about it in the in the culture already, but this 
uh, as everyone knows, has been 20 years since the attacks of 9-11, and so consequently also 20 years of the war on terror, which uh, with the official pullout of the last U.S. forces in Afghanistan, supposedly, uh, is winding down coming to an end uh one thing that i've been wondering is how did we get from the tragedy of 9-11 which was undeniably a tragedy a a massive attack uh to the the policy effect that became the the war on terror how did we get from one tragedy to just 20 years of non-stop war and what would have maybe a more compassionate and just response to 9-11 look like? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, it is indisputably a tragedy when anybody is, is killed, uh, but uh, indisputably massive. It depends what we're comparing it to when we have, you know, the number of people who died that day in those criminal acts uh, dying, uh, you know, every couple of days now from a disease pandemic uh, just in one country, uh, never mind the rest of the world suffering from the same disease pandemic. Uh, when we have uh, economic, uh, excuse me, when we have environmental collapse and catastrophes threatening all life on the planet and already killing many more people uh, than die in the sort of crimes uh, that were committed that day. Uh, When we have wars that were generated by the far greater tragedy, the tragedy of 9-12, right? The the response to 9-11 that have killed millions of people and left millions of people injured and traumatized and homeless and created the biggest refugee crisis in the history of the world. But my God, what should we have done? We had to do something. We couldn't do the nothing that is anything other than bombing foreign countries. Well, of course we could. Uh, The very same buildings uh, had been attacked uh, in the past. And those attempts to blow up the same exact buildings in New York City had been treated like many other attacks before and since around the world as crimes. Crimes are things you prosecute. They're not excuses to commit larger crimes. Uh, And so while the New York Times will tell you in recent days that uh, the United States wanted to put Osama bin Laden on trial and the Taliban wanted a war, the New York Times told you 20 years ago what all the other media outlets told you 20 years ago, the exact reverse, that the Taliban wanted to turn bin Laden over to a third country to be put on trial and the United States government wanted war. Uh, wars are always very carefully maneuvered into. Peace is very carefully avoided. You know, So it's the opposite of this notion of last resort that's nonsensical in any case, because what would it mean to run out of resorts? Uh, but why not take the approach of changing your conduct toward the world? recognizing that while the crimes bin Laden complained of didn't begin to justify one iota his commission of crimes, they were crimes, they were outrages. Uh, To this day, 20 years later, you have somebody blow themselves up at Kabul airport and everyone scratch their heads and say, what can you do about these irrational monsters? When we know that 95% of suicide terrorist attacks are generated by the motivation of getting a foreign military to stop occupying a country, right? So there's nothing we can do to justify suicide terrorist attacks. What would that mean? But we do know how to eliminate 95% of them tomorrow. 
end the foreign military occupations of countries. Uh, you know, so if the United States wanted to support the rule of law and join all the world's treaties and support the International Criminal Court and the World Court and start funding the better governments of the world rather than arming and training and funding all the most oppressive ones with two exceptions, uh, it, it could. We could take a, a completely different approach to the world if we wanted to. Yeah, precisely. I, really I just want to uh, oh, like echo what you sort of said there with you know, I don't I don't really like the term blowback when we talk about foreign policy. Um, the sort of, you know, it it's our fault that 9-11 happened because we were we were bombing their countries before then. Um, I think that that can often be uh, it, it, it it's not it's not really accurate. Um, I, I never want to place blame on the obviously innocent Americans that were killed in any terrorist attack um, or the innocent people killed anywhere. Um, but I do think that sort of looking at the history of the war on terror as starting with 9/11, you know, we were attacked out of nowhere is sort of the narrative that has been pushed on me my entire life. Um, I was very young when 9/11 happened, and I think that. For me, until I got older and had to do the research myself, it really was presented to me as though, you know, I had never heard of the Middle East. I didn't know anything about anything over there. Um, and one day they just attacked us because they hated us for our freedom. Um, and we we know now that that isn't true, or at least I know now that that isn't true. Uh, but I think that that message is still out there. Well, of course it is. It's never gone away. You have uh, Joe Biden and the previous three presidents uh, pushing the same nonsense, uh, despite all the evidence. Um, I, I, I wrote a book called Curing Exceptionalism just to make the point that was obvious 20 years ago and every day since that the United States is not actually a very high ranking nation in terms of freedoms. So if someone were to go around hating countries because of their freedoms, the United States would be pretty far down the list. Um, and I, I do think it's important to distinguish governments from people. This notion that people who happened to be in some building or on some airplane uh, were significantly to blame because of the actions of their government. I, I mean, yes, we all collectively in the United States, as in many parts of the world, fail to, to impose better behavior on our government. Um, and, and blame is not some, you know, finite quantity. There's, there's infinite blame to go around and everybody gets a little bit. Uh, but the people chiefly to blame uh, are, are the corrupt elected officials, the, the financial and, and weapons interests corrupting them, the corporate media outlets facilitating them, the, the military engaging in criminal activities uh, based on these fraudulent excuses. Um, I, I mean, we have to we have to prioritize where the most blame goes. Uh, and and so I, I, I do think blowback, as Chalmers Johnson used the term, can be a useful term. It means uh, that to the average viewer in the United States, some foreign attack came out of nowhere. But to someone who's been paying a little attention or in some cases is in on some secrets, uh, it, it actually was generated by criminal activity of the U.S. government in the in the prior years. Uh, and in most cases, there's no need to know any secrets. It's all I mean, uh, bin Laden stated publicly what his motivations were. Almost every 
you know, irrational, crazy terrorist attacker states publicly what their reasons are. And sometimes they really are crazy, um, but usually they're quite predictable and consistent. Uh, and we know exactly what it would take uh, to prevent them. I mean, when there was a terrorist attack in Madrid, Spain, they immediately elected a government to get all Spanish troops out of Iraq. They did so. There was never again a terrorist attack in Spain from outside of Spain, right? The United States, the UK, Germany, all these other countries take the exact opposite approach. If we're generating terrorism against our country, let's generate more of it through more terrorism, uh, you know, and it doesn't work. So I, I have a question now then uh, as someone who's, for you, as someone who's been in the anti-war movement um, for a significant amount of time, you've sort of seen, particularly Afghanistan, but all of these entanglements play out over the, the past 20 years. I want to know what you think, um, what you think the anti-war movement's um, role has been over these past 20 years, what what have we achieved and what have we failed at? Because I don't think that anyone would agree that, you know, we, we solved war already. Obviously, World Beyond War is still working and all of these groups are, are still working. Um, looking back on the past 20 years, what do you think, what do you think we could have done better to prevent some of these ongoing tragedies from occurring? <laughs> Not that I place the blame on the anti-war movement, um, but looking forward, what can what can we necessarily do? You know, well, the I'm next not time? sure. I'm not sure how to answer this in under five hours. So you just tell me when <laughs> to stop. But um, I, I uh, yeah, I, I obviously there's there are inclinations to to criticize those in the anti-war movement whose strategy is a little different from one's own. Uh, but that has to be understood in the context that the chief blame goes to those engaged in the war making, plus the 99% of people who are sitting on their butts watching TV and not doing anything slightly wrong or dramatically wrong. Uh, but I think, you know, the downside of what the anti-war movement hasn't done is is quite apparent. Um, the, the risk of nuclear apocalypse is as high as it has ever been, uh, higher than it has ever been before. Um, the environmental destruction by the militaries, uh, which are given a complete waiver by all the climate agreements, uh, is greater than it's ever been. Weapon sales and armament of nations is higher than it's ever been. Uh, NATO membership uh, has grown. The number of wars has grown. Uh, we've developed new forms of war, such as blowing people up with robot airplanes. Uh, torture has been largely normalized and accepted. Um, you know, the, the endless string of wars and coups, uh, again, the worst refugee crisis seen. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's just been a disaster. The, the plus side is how dramatically worse it could have been how many wars we've clearly prevented, how many times the U.S. government was inches away from starting a war on Iran, how close they have come to a war on Russia, uh, the, the massive bombing of Syria that was prevented by public pressure in 2013, the, the, even, even on the wars on Afghanistan and Iraq, where public pressure is 
recognized as having existed because it was so huge, the media couldn't deny that, but then is denounced as having failed. Uh, there were huge successes, right? Huge successes in terms of moving nations against the UN uh, supporting the war on Iraq, uh, the UN voting it down, making it criminal, making it shameful, the number of people educated, the number of future wars prevented through that example, the number of movements inspired around the world, the, the, the accomplishments in the Arab Spring and other movements that grew out of and saw themselves as part of the anti-war movement. Um, you know, there have been great strides in terms of of education and, and locally people have been winning campaigns all the time in terms of divesting money from weapons dealers, in, in terms of stopping weapons shipments, um, in, in terms of preventing the construction of new military bases and closing existing military bases uh, and so forth. So there are victories uh, to build on. Um, but, you know, we, we need, we need a stronger, more global, uh, and more all out for abolition anti-war movement. We need a less partisan, less halfway, less war supporting, but let's tweak it and humanize it sort of movement. Um, the biggest movement we've seen in these years in the U S was around 2003, four, five, uh, when the Democratic Party was out of power and pretending to be opposed to war, come the 2006 elections and then the 2007 takeover uh, by the Democrats elected to end the war in Iraq and their choice to escalate it instead and in order to run against it again in 2008 and all the money and all the partisan fervor uh, redirected into the 2008 election instead of a nonpartisan anti-war movement that's still against wars, even if they're not Republican wars. You know, the, there are all kinds of mistakes of this sort that we can go after, and and we know what needs to be done better. Um, but for the most part, we haven't learned. <laughs> you know, as we speak, the Congress is looking at increasing military spending beyond what the president wanted, which was increasing it beyond what Trump wanted, while telling the world that the wars are over. Uh, and, and this is a bill that will uh, create mandatory draft registration for women that will likely build a monument on the National Mall if there's a square inch left that doesn't have a war monument to all the wars of the past 20 years. Uh, and the progressives in the House are doing their usual scam where they vote yes for good amendments, including an amendment to reduce the amount of money in the bill. And then when that fails turn around and vote for the bill. Uh, this, you know, I, I, I dearly hope to be proved wrong and, and to look incredibly stupid with that prediction, but uh, I think it's a safe one. Well, unfortunately, a couple of hours ago, uh, not not even the full squad, uh, the the good one supposedly on, on war issues, uh, split on a $1 billion funding for the Iron Dome program. So... I mean, which passed, which passed overwhelmingly with Democratic and Republican support, but not even like the the supposedly anti-war ones could uh, muster a unified block. And this is this is your quintessential, you know, the they call it a self-licking ice cream scam, right? The United States gives money to the Israeli government. 
to build weapons, and then turns around and gives more money to buy those weapons for the U.S. military from the Israeli government. It's it, it's it's incredible to me. And and you have these democracy conferences coming up where the U.S. is going to talk about the the democracies of the world. Well, most of its aid is weapons. And, and most of that uh, weapons aid goes to the most oppressive anti-democratic governments, governments like the Israeli government that President Biden, uh, I think yesterday at the UN, called a Jewish country. If, if, you, if you live in Israel and you're not Jewish, too bad. This, you know, this is just part of democracy. We have to have a Jewish country. Uh, and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and 48 out of the top 50 most oppressive governments on earth getting funding and weapons and training uh, from the U.S. military. Uh, this is not how you encourage democracy. Well, so then uh, it sounds pretty clear that the well, the rhetorical war on terror might be done with the end of official ground operations in Afghanistan, which we know that there are probably going to be continued drone strikes and things like that. Um, isolated attacks and things like that. But uh, we can probably safely assume that the U.S., even just the war on terror, which encompasses more than just Iraq and Afghanistan, um, that it's going to continue in the future. So what should we be on the lookout for? And uh, how can we resist it? I'm thinking specifically like the continued escalation of the Biden administration on um, rhetoric against China, um, kind of a, a turn again towards kind of Cold War anti-communism uh, against Cuba, against Venezuela. Um, what should we be looking out for? Well, we should be aware that the U.S. government and U.S. media don't consider bombing a country to be war. So if you pull out U.S. troops... You can keep bombing the place, even if bombing the place was the was the majority of what the war consisted of. The war is now over. Uh, and so we should be watching the news from countries around the world for where bombs are falling, make up our own mind whether or not there's a war going on. Uh, because as long as there are no U.S. troops acknowledged on the ground, they will tell us there's no U.S. war there. Um, we should also be, as you say, paying very close attention to what the U.S. is doing in regard to China. Um, I mean, there was a study recently that found that all the dozens of countries that sent troops to participate in the U.S.-led war on Afghanistan generated, if you don't want to call it blowback, uh, generated terrorism back in their own countries in proportion to how many troops they sent to take part in the war on Afghanistan. So it's predictable, it's proportionate, it's measurable. The war on terrorism generates terrorism. Why, after that experience, would any of these countries sign on to threaten war on China. Well, it's, it's absolute insanity, except for all of the carrots and sticks uh, of, the, of the bullying U.S. government uh, that tells countries like Australia what they need to do. Um, and, and so we need to be making the case to governments around the world that this is not the moment to sign on for another war uh, between two nuclear countries, not a nuclear country uh, and some impoverished people in mountains, but two nuclear countries. This is this is insanity to be signing on for this. Uh, and the, if you if you want to complain about human rights in China, 
do it through legal bodies and by setting a better example yourself uh, and don't do it by threatening the supreme crime as the u.s prosecutor called it at nuremberg the supreme international crime that encompasses in itself all others namely war yeah precisely and i and i think that when we talk about this i never want to give the perception that we I always get yelled at when I talk about war stuff from our followers. Um, and so <laughs> I'm just going to say, it's, to yell at you. and it's, it's, be, it's because I agree with you, David, on most things. Um, and then people come and yell at me because we have a lot of people who endorse just war theory um, that uh, are in the rehumanized family. And I love them and I, I want them to, to work with us. And I'm so glad when they work with us um, on, you know, de-escalation of, of military militarism. Um, but I think we, I think World Beyond War, um, and I think you, David, use a lot of strong language about war that people really push back against. Um, and so, I just want to, I just want to bring that up. I want to bring up um, just war theory and the war on terror and China. You know, if we're if we're going to be talking about um, human rights abuses globally, whether it's you know in an ally like Saudi Arabia, and so we ignore it, or someone who we're trying to fight like China, so. We're interested in it. Um, I, w- I want to bring that up. I want to challenge you, like the the just war theorists that are that at me on Twitter challenge me. Yeah. Um, how do how are how am I supposed to respond to human rights abuses? Well, you know, first of all, I think we should be clear among ourselves and the people who are yelling at you that we don't need to have a rhetorical war about war. We can we can disagree and we can present evidence and try to persuade each other and perhaps per- persuade each other uh, without yelling and screaming. We can leave that to the war, no matter what we think of the war. Ooh, um, I, like that. Uh, I, I also, you know, think it's possible to have these debates very civilly and uh, and politely. I've debated publicly a professor from West Point Military Academy who maintains you can have lots of good just wars and I maintain you never can. And we debate and we see, you know, what the how the audience moves from the start to the finish. Um, I, I, I wrote a book called War is Never Just, looking at all the theories uh, that support the idea of a just war historically and recently and currently. Uh, and, you know, one of the one of the main reasons I can say quickly, there are dozens that I don't think you can have a just war is that if you're going to have wars, you have to have the institution of war, you know. What is it, the, the guy from West Point didn't want to talk about any wars, by the way, in the debate about wars. He wanted to talk about what I would do in a dark alley at night if my grandmother was attacked, right? And the thing is, you can be nonviolent, violent, or anything else when your grandmother is attacked without years of preparation and investment and training and weapons manufacture. You can't with war. You have to have the institution of war. And the problem with that is that just 3% of the spending on it just from the United States alone could end starvation on earth and numerous similar statistics, right? And so the money is killing far more people than the wars have killed thus far by being diverted from where it's actually needed. So you're going to have to come up with a, with a theoretical war that is not, not only does more good than harm on its own, but does so much good that it outweighs all of the death and suffering created by this diversion of resources. Uh, And and so what do you do when, uh, you know, human rights are being abused? Well, 
you, you stop funding them, you stop supporting them, you stop engaging in them, you start supporting the rule of law and the use of global diplomatic peer pressure for good rather than ill. Uh, you know, countries do respond. Uh, I, I mean, when 2013, when the U.S. decided not to bomb uh, Syria, it was after an uproar by the U.S. public and by the British Parliament uh, voting against a war for the first time since the the, the American Revolution. Right? Uh, countries can respond. There are bodies of law and institutions of law that are trying to do their job, and their greatest enemy is the U.S. government, which not only opposes the existence of the International Criminal Court and the World Court, but punishes countries that support them uh, and is the leading holdout uh, among nations on, most, uh, on the most major human rights treaties on earth. Uh, when you're supporting putting Saudi Arabia in the chairmanship of the UN Human Rights Commission, when you're funding and arming Saudi Arabia, uh, and, and you know, I, I looked at the 50 most oppressive governments by a study funded by the U.S. government, and 48 of them, you know, the little exceptions of Cuba and North Korea, 48 of them are getting funded and armed and trained by the U.S. military. So. If you want to support human rights, support human rights across the board, day in, day out. Don't suddenly care about human rights when you think it might keep a war going in Afghanistan or start a war in China. Because, you know, yeah, the, the, the denunciations of human rights abuses by China are wildly exaggerated, but not 100%. There are real outrageous human rights abuses by the government of China. But when did threatening or launching a war against a country ever improve their human rights behavior? Every single time you impose murderous sanctions on Iran or Cuba or North Korea or Syria, you, you get the opposite of what supposedly is the intended result. You get people rallying around a government, no matter how horrible it is, in opposition to the foreign threat. You don't get, you know, the people rising up and overthrowing their government with American flags. It, it's never happened, uh, you know. And, and so it, no matter what you think of human rights conduct in China, do something that would tend to make it better, not something that would tend to make it worse. Uh, and don't use it as an excuse to commit a greater crime, you know bombing women in Afghanistan for women's rights is not actually a women's rights initiative. And 90% of drone strike deaths were civilians. Yes, yes, by anybody's definition. Uh, and the vast majority of them are unknown. Uh, nobody has, has recorded who was killed. Um, and, uh, and this was true for 20 years. And then you had a drone strike that actually was in the middle of downtown Kabul, not out in the provinces, uh, and was a side story to the biggest news story of the week, the ending of the longest war, as long as Native Americans aren't human beings and their wars weren't really wars. Uh, and, and so it was covered by the media. And you had investigations by the New York Times, and they exposed the lies and the excuses and who was really murdered, they could have been doing this for 20 years if, if anybody cared. 
you know, there was nothing different about this drone murder and all the other drone murders. Uh, it, it was just the media attention. Um, and, and still, we haven't seen any serious proposal to, to change the policy of, of using these drones to murder more people. All right, David, I think we have to let you go. So if you have anything you want to share uh, as, a, as parting thoughts, you already plugged all your stuff in the beginning, so we're good on that, and we'll mention it in the outro. But let us know uh, if there's anything else you want to share before we let you go. Um, well, people who care about the environment and don't know that militaries are given a waiver from all the climate agreements, even though for many countries, the military is the biggest way they destroy the climate, uh, should look at COP26.info. Uh, should try to get involved in raising the the idea in the coming weeks of including militaries uh, in climate agreements because it would make a tremendous difference uh, for the climate and it would force the the radical reduction in in militaries. Thank you, David. All right, thank you. Appreciate it. Stay in touch. I appreciate it. Every time that I hear you, I feel like I I learn a lot and get a pushed a little bit on pushed a lot on my uh, just war theory default towards a war, zero war. That's why I make David speak at our events yeah. on our podcast. That's exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> well, well, you tell it. You could just tell everybody where to yell at me, and and they have no business yelling at you, and uh, and you know, send them my way. All right, that was David Swanson. He promoted his stuff in the beginning uh, of when he started talking, but I want to just plug his Twitter so that you actually can go and yell at him and not me if you are angry. Let me find it. Ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow him right now. Oh my gosh, you don't already follow David? I um, think I do. He, he is at David CNS. Oh, that's just Swanson. So David CN Swanson. So Dave, David CNSWANSON uh, at. So it's on Twitter. Um, go follow him. He tweets good stuff. I'm not going to endorse everything he's ever no. tweeted, but um, I endorse following him for a perspective that you might not have seen before. Um, I follow David. I, I am following him. him. I think that. Um, I mentioned this when he was here, but uh, I I try to invite David to to our rehumanized stuff. He's spoken at the rehumanized conference several times, and he's always one of our more controversial speakers. Um, people get mad at him, uh, and then they get mad at me for inviting him. And I like that. I like when people yell at me um, because it means that I'm challenging them and that they are being introduced to new ideas that they perhaps are have not heard before. Um, so. I'm very grateful that David is willing to to work with us and that the whole World Beyond War team has always been very gracious to come to our events um, and support us and uh, have us be one of their uh, affiliated organizations as we are all working to build a culture of peace. Uh, speaking of Twitter, uh, I, I, I have a tweet that is mildly popping off it's 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 pretty popping off for for my kind of like scale of twitter usage um but uh occupy democrats uh supposedly you know like a progressive organization is like rt if you support the companies uh about 50 of the biggest companies in texas 
um, signing a letter blasting Governor Abbott's abortion ban. And uh, I was like, cool. I love it when, you know, my progressive organization supports capitalists eliminating, eliminating working class children. Like that's, that's great. And has 66 likes. So that's, that's more than I uh, usually get on anything. So. Well, you know, while we're, while we're talking about it, Emiliano, why don't you plug your Twitter account? So our, our listeners can go follow you and yell at you when you say things that they don't like. Um, I like to remain obscure. Like if you want to find me, I won't block you, but, uh, I'm going to make you do the work on that one. Ooh, mysterious. Well, I have retweeted Emiliano in the past, so you can just scroll through my Twitter until you find the account. Um, what else do we have to say? Well, I'll plug myself then. Follow me if Emiliano is not going to be an attention seeker. Uh, my, my at is at Herb Garrity. Find me there. Actually, don't follow me. Just follow at Rehumanize International if you don't already follow us on Twitter. Uh, that account is better than mine. Anything else we want to share? Um, That's it for me. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Rehumanize podcast. This has been Herb, and I'm just going to say, this has been Herb and Emiliano. We don't we don't need to say our names by ourselves. Uh, good night, everyone, or good morning, whenever you're listening to this. Thank you. See you next month.